Hey guys, what's going on? It's David Avalon with my co-host Robert Drysdale for another episode of Breaking the Guard. And on today's episode, we start off talking about meat. <laughs> and uh, not from last time about hunting, more so uh, uh, meat consumption. <laughs> uh, we got into it because actually I made Robert some bison tri-tip here at the house. So uh, we kind of talk about that and then we... Uh, make a segue into luck and the role that it plays in sports and in life in general. And um, afterwards, we go into a little bit about loyalty as far as uh, training with your same instructor and, you know, your students, that type of thing. What type of allegiance you, you owe to both your, your sensei or to your student. And uh, we finish off with some old war stories uh, between Rob and I and as far as like tactics, you know, well, particularly since he's so tall, he, he posed a particular challenge I wasn't really ready for. So we talk a little bit about that and ways that you could probably prepare better in the future for, for particular matchups that you might face. So uh, go ahead and tune in and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to BJJRetreat.com. As you know, BJJRetreat.com is your place if you're looking to have an awesome vacation while training and learning at the same time. My next retreat is going to be here in Las Vegas from November 2nd to the 8th. And uh, that's going to land just before the IBJJF Masters World Championships here in Vegas. So if you're planning on going there, you might as well just come a week early and double up and the fun and uh you could see the itinerary pricing and all that stuff at bjjretreat.com uh typically we have eight spots available in the house where you could stay with me here and get meals and stuff like that and all the training is going to be happening here anyway so it makes it a really convenient spot uh otherwise we have six spots available outside the house so we are, we cap it out at 14 people as a max so it's not a big camp where you're going to get a lot more individual attention. We have uh, three-hour sessions where we're training at, and then we usually visit some open mats in the area. So you're usually going to get about 18 hours of mat time. So it's a good amount of training, but we also have lots of cool activities to do. Like, again, in the last one, we had people throwing axes and spears, Chinese stars, stuff like that. We went shooting out in the desert, did some hiking. Of course, we ate well. I ate like kings here, actually. So if you're interested in, in jumping in, we're doing an early bird special until the end of August. So we have about a week left as of now. Uh, it's 30% off. So go ahead, check it out at bjjretreat.com. Hey guys, what's going on? David Avalon here with my co-host Robert Drysdale for a, another episode of Breaking the Guard. This time, not one month apart. <laughs> oh, three days, four days. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're we're getting better. Yeah, it's it's just like it's the travel schedule, man. Cause like if I'm not traveling, you are, and then sometimes I got the kids. There's always, there's always something going on, right? We don't for both of us to get quiet time. 
even though we live like literally like what, four blocks away from each other. No excuses, really. I mean, we yeah, we could probably be more organized, Dave. We could probably pull it off once a week, but it's, we it's not always easy, you know. Like shit is changing. My my, my schedule, especially, is like all over the place. Well, like so. today, I I bribed you with bison, so that made it easy, right? That's the only reason I came here, by the way, because <laughs> Dave probably showed me a picture of him like grilling bison. I'm like, all right, I'm on my way for another episode of Breaking the Guard. <laughs> that was great, by the way. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I- Oh, it's my favorite meat. It's no, it's super good. lean, man, clean. Um, it's, you know, like I've gone through phase, like, oh, I'm going to eat less meat. And then I hear guys be like, you're pretty much carnivores. All you want to eat is meat. I love meat. I crave it. Yeah. I go back and forth on the ethical issue. Like, um, you know, the animals are poorly treated. But, oh, man, I love it. You know, it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy one, man. Like, I could never move away from meat. But I've told myself many times that I'm going to eat less meat and, and just be, Try to just maybe have ten percent of my diet be meat based, maybe less. Uh, I just can't do it, man. Like, I grew up in Brazil, eat barbecue like twice a week. Yeah, no, I'm gonna say you're from Brazil, like South America in general. You yeah. eat a lot of meat. It's a, there's, yeah. it's cheap too. Like poor people eat steak yeah. in Brazil like, every week, no problem. You know, it's not. It's it's very compared to here at least. It's very very accessible. You know, so. Yeah. And I don't have any ethical issues eating meat. Anyway. <laughs> I go back. Here's the thing. I, I've seen. Like, you watch. I don't know if if you guys are listening. You've seen one of those documentaries on how the animals are treated. It's awful. It's terrible. Yeah, that part gets to me. Not the fact that like, oh, I don't. I think that all species, all animals are created equal. Like, no, I don't believe that. I think there is a hierarchy. And yeah, I can eat a cow because a cow can't eat meat. You know, it's it's nature. I would prefer animals that are treated ethically. Like, I would rather buy grass fed. It like that. Oh, for sure. I, I again, I would agree with the same. I also see it from the other perspective. Even if I didn't care about the animal's welfare itself, as far as it living a happy life, yeah. if it is living a life trapped up in a pen, yeah. walking around on its own shit, you know, it's not going to be a good food either. You know what I mean? It, yeah. yeah, and it's, it's ethically and exactly, it's health wise, taste wise. Yeah. Gonna, so even if you're selfish, like yeah. you don't want to eat something yeah. that's been mistreated. That's a good point. That's why, like to me, like the. Uh, hunting is probably like the most ethical way of getting your meat because animals yeah. living free, wild, the way it's yeah. supposed to, and then you're just boom, getting it really quick. You know, it doesn't have to suffer yeah, for and, many and, and, years or live. You know, kind of like I think chickens probably have the worst of any animal. They get pinned up. Really they're they're like yeah. in the Matrix, you know, where like yeah. <laughs> their eggs are being taken away. And you know, it is kind of like the Matrix for them, isn't it? Yeah, of that. it's a freaking yeah. like, in particular the places that are sketchy. Sometimes the feed is like ground up chicken that's getting refed into. You know how crazy fast they grow the chickens. Too, oh, it's right? crazy with hormones. Yeah. Like it's like in a matter of like weeks or days, they go from birth to adulthood. We had said uh, doing again, like we could be butchering this, but from what I recall, during like the avian flu scares, like if they had to call the entire chicken population and essentially give birth to a new chicken population that would be like genetically resistant to this avian flu, mm-hmm. it would take like two years to replace the population of oh, all the chickens. Oh, okay, globally. Yeah, it's like, damn, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because we. I mean, we just consume. I mean, the thing is that the thing about it is. Um, we've never eaten so much meat. Like meat has not been like we, we. It's readily accessible to everyone. Like it was, it was a treat. You know, not every place had easy game. Depends. Yeah. So, like some populations had easy game, tons of protein, right? But you know, many many hunter and gatherer populations they were protein deficient because of where they happened to be in, in geographically, right? So very dramatically. So it's not that it was like oh we were eating that much meat. Some people were. Some people barely had access to it. Um, yeah, there's a super interesting book. I read it back in college. Not really related to 
you know, meat per se, but talks about the, the diversity of the globe and how that affects how civilizations develop. Called Guns, Germs, and Steel, German Diamond. Jared, Jared Diamond, very famous book, very popular, won a bunch of prizes. There's a documentary about it. If you don't want to read the book, watch the documentary, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And the central argument of the book is, uh, you know, because of evolution and how some species evolved in some places, some continents were at a geographic advantage in terms of the rise of civilization. So you can explain the rise of civilization, the Fertile Crescent, what is now the Middle East, Northern Africa, because they had the pig, they had the cow, they had horses, they had, I think, ducks, they had chicken. They also had wheat, barley. What else did they have? Basically everything. I mean, these are real. I mean, then you go to places like Australia. What do the Aborigines have? Yeah. They're not domesticated. They're not animals. You, can, you can't domesticate a kangaroo. Yeah, you you can't, can't domesticate a koala. So they're limited as to what they can do. Whereas a horse, you think about a horse, what kind of advantage that will give you like, uh, in terms of like competing with other peoples or just like, just think about like, uh, uh, um, like transport. For think sure. about warfare. Think about leather, bones, meat, milk. It's huge. So if, if people don't have a certain animal, they're at a huge disadvantage, right? Great books, fascinating theory when you think about it. But it goes to explain why civilization arose where it arose because it has not just the animals but also the plants necessary to actually farm. Because yeah. if you don't have plants you can farm, like you're, you're lost. How are you going to start? How are you going to settle and start a civilization, start a, a village and you know, make that transition from a hunter and gatherer society to, to farming, right? To a post agricultural society? Really interesting read. I'm um, not sure why I remember that. We're talking about geography. But um, yeah, like it's uh, highly recommended, man. Like it gives you a good, good idea. Because there's a, I think there's a, something people trying to explain. In the past, they have done this. It has been politically incorrect to explain why some people came out on top, right? Why, why did this people colonize that people and not that or the other? Oh, I must be race, right? And that was the explanation 200 years ago. Clearly, you know, why Europeans are superior. And it, it can't be the case because there's a moment in history where Chinese are far more advanced than Europeans were. There was a moment in history where doctors in Northern Africa, like they had a very good understanding of medicine, right, of how to treat disease. Whereas doctors in Europe, like there was, there's like how they would treat mental illness back in the dark, I still call it the dark ages. I know you're not supposed to say that anymore, but it was pretty dark, man. They, they would cut a cross on the back of your head and let the demons bleed out. And that was treatment. And that was Europe for you. These people didn't shower either. So yeah. that's to develop these super germs. Like the germs became like their biological warfare against people they were colonizing. So it's not like there's any sense of real superiority. It's just that they happen to be in a place and time in history that gave them a huge advantage to colonize other people, right? But like a lot of the inventions that allowed Europe to colonize the world, if you take a close look at them, they're not from Europe. They're from Northern Africa or the Middle East or China. They're not of actually, if you look at the most inventions like cartography, um, uh, metal, like bronze, iron, the compass, they're not European inventions, right? But Europe had to be in a place in time with that technology was made available that allowed them to colonize the rest of the world, right? So I'm not doing the book justice, but it goes to explain like why the world turned out the way to be it, the way it is. But his main argument goes back to geography. What do a given people have available for them to compete against other people? Yeah, it sounds uh, similar to what I've read, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, you know, Outliers, where similar concept in that you have a particularly talented person, but he's in the right place, the yeah. right time, yeah. with the proper resources yes. to exploit the talent. Yeah. And it goes, as you know, even in the sports, 
There's many athletic people all over the place, but some of them are just not in the position where they can train with somebody who can elevate their talent to the next level. And then just like you said, that, I know, I think you've told me this, but like there's guys doing jiu-jitsu in the favelas are like superstars, but like nobody knows them because yeah. they're just, you know, they're, unfortunately they just... Uh, and they, they, and they get yeah. some pregnant when they're 20 and then they're gone. They just got to get a job now. Like career's yeah. over like that, you know? Whereas if you had rich parents, yeah. they're like, okay, you can continue your jiu-jitsu career. We'll help take care of the child. You know, these yeah. are advantages. Dude, luck is a huge... People underestimate the role of luck. It's all about, like, when it comes to athletics or business or all these other things, we see success, right? And people go, oh, you're successful because of your hard work. Like, hard work is half the equation. The other half is what you're talking about, right? Like, where you are... Like, I mean, if Michael Jordan had been born in Zimbabwe, you think he'd be Michael Jordan? Right, yeah. You know? Like, these things matter. Like, so there's a lot matters. of... Yeah, that people don't like using luck... And I and I understand that as well because it's kind of discrediting somebody. Yeah. It shouldn't be seen that way because you st- even if you're very lucky, you still have to prepare for it. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, I could be born, you know, having a basketball player like genes, even though clearly I don't. Right? But let's say I was like superstar. I still have to practice. I still have to train. I still have to compete. I still have to show up. You know what I mean? So. Because sometimes people are like, oh, that guy's a genetic freak. He was always going to be really good. Like I've seen a lot of people who are genetic freaks that are yeah. not good at all. Yeah, and they don't even Many. train. Yeah, so like it's a combination of things. But so yeah. many factors. But like particularly when we're talking about elite level athletes, yeah, they there's obviously some luck involved in where they were, you know, their location, resources, and genetics. You know that all of them combined. Like, I think that's what made martial arts very interesting early on was that there wasn't as much as a luck factor because we didn't really have high-level athletes. Yeah. You look at UFC 1, you know, like Keith Hackney, a sumo wrestler, you know. A bunch it made of, it more interesting. Yeah, because yeah. then it was more about technique and battle will. Yeah. And I think more will than anything, yeah. to be honest, you know. Yeah. Because if you look back at some of those early ones, they're like, man, the technique's horrendous. Yeah, you know I, mean? Know to, I mean, they thought they knew how to fight. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean... It's easy for us to judge, you know, but like... Because nobody knew anything, yeah. But compared to today, yeah. Like you, but it, it's it's what you're saying, man. Like, it's so important if people don't realize is the, the, the role of the genetics, environment, like even your upbringing, like even your environment. I talk a lot about this one. Your social environment is super important. Having that support network makes things a lot easier, man. Like, it'd be, life can be very difficult if every person around you is trying to, like, convince you to get a job or do something you don't want to do, you know? Um, but the thing is, I, people have this view, and I talk a little bit about this in my book, and I've always, it's always bothered me. They have this, I call it a binary view. It's A or B. It's black or white. There's no nuance in the world. And the world is like, people aren't good. Oh, that guy's a liar. There's no such thing as that guy is a liar. That guy lied is a good statement. That guy is a liar is like an idiotic statement. Everyone's a liar. Everyone lies. Right? Like, who doesn't lie? Who's never done anything dishonest in their life? Like, is it really anyone who could say, I've never lied? I'm like, so everyone's a liar. It's just that, you know, when are you lying? Like, that person lied in that event. There's nuance, is my point, right? Why is it people have such a hard time seeing that things can coexist? Like, you can have luck and work ethic coexisting in perfect harmony. Is it so hard to understand? Like, if you're saying, oh, you tell me that I'm lucky. No, I'm telling you, yes, you were lucky. I'm not saying that what? You didn't work hard as well. I'm seeing that these things coexist in perfect harmony. <laughs> I'm laughing because it reminds me of an argument I had with, with my girlfriend, Jamie, when I went to go hunting. She's like, oh, you're just doing this just uh, as a hobby, right? I'm like, no, no, I'm doing this because 
one, I want to be able to bring in my own meat. Two, if you're actually successful, yeah. you save money, a considerable amount of money yeah. bringing in something. And three, yeah, I'm going to have fun doing it. But like in her view, it was it's only, one or the other. It was only a, a hobby of fun. She just wanted yeah. me to admit it's only about hobby of fun. I'm like, look, if it was just about shooting, and that would be like a sport shooting. Yeah. If I wasn't allowed to take the meat or harvest the meat, I would not go hunting. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I don't believe you. I'm like, oh. <laughs> you don't know. Like, too yeah, well, yeah, I know. It's, 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 but, but I see what you're saying. Like yeah. people have that. It, like it's very. I mean, I, I do this too. I think we all do it at some point where we go. You know, it's this or that because we have we're tied into a certain view, like a certain narrative. Um, but like, if you if you pay close attention, I, mean, I think most situations there's a lot going on. Not it's just not only one force or two in play. Sometimes you have multiple forces in play, and that's what makes human behavior so complex. It's not one. It's not. It's not linear, man. It's like all this influx of inputs and different kind of pressures and different kind of wills. If even within yourself, there's conflict. Like Dave wants to do this. Well, no, sometimes Dave wants to do complete different opposite things. You have part of you that wants to go, I'm going to eat. And there's a part of you who wants to go, I want to go home. You know, like it's not always, it's very conflicting. Um, which is, this is why, like, I think like, language a lot of times makes communication difficult because language tends to be this or that. There's not a lot of, we can't always say exactly what we mean. It's difficult to do it because you have an idea in your head. It's something that's, let's say, something within that gray area, but language is always, it's black. It's, it doesn't always give you the tools describe what you're trying to say so a lot of times i'm saying I'm, I'm i'm arguing something with you and you're reading something completely different and we're arguing about something we don't even agree on what we're arguing about and that's a huge I mean, that's a problem everywhere you pay attention people are constantly doing they're arguing about things and if you stop asking questions they go what is it that you guys are actually arguing about and you realize they're actually arguing about two different things but they're using the same word to describe it you say, I, I mean I, I i see this a, a lot i see this in politics a lot i see this in like even at home in debates, like I'm arguing with people, sometimes I have to stop. Like, okay, what is it that exactly that we're disagreeing about? And a lot of times you'll find that you have a lot more agreement than disagreement. It's just that you got to get the language down. Yeah, we can't always see that these things coexist, right? You start paying attention. There's a lot of these things that coexist. But people do get offended if you say that talent, if you say that they're lucky. They don't like to hear that. Whereas, like, I've reached a conclusion. I'm exceptionally lucky. Like, I got so lucky in my life. Like, think about it. I mean, you just start looking at things that had to go. Because I think, you, you know, the the... the you have to take the good and the bad too. Like some of the bad things, they seem like awful things at the time. They turn out to be some of the greatest things that's ever happened to you. Yeah. Like you just gotta, you know, like, like Nietzsche has got this concept. He calls it amor fati, right? The, the love of fate. You're supposed to love your fate, whatever it is. The bad is a lesson. The good is gonna enjoy, you know. But it's it's part of the cycle, man. It's part of life. He's gonna have the good and bad. But not to acknowledge the the the, the role of luck. I think it's, I, I think it's not just. You know, it's almost like you have to. Because, you, because it's easy to judge people like, oh, you didn't make it as far as I did in life, you know? And then you take a look at your life. Like, wait a second, man. Like, dude, I lived with my mom until I was like 24 in, in Brazil. She took care of me financially. Like, that gave me time, right? She kicked me out of the house. I've been different. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was in Brazil, not Paraguay. Brazil happens to be a place for jiu-jitsu at the time, you know? Uh, I have an American passport. That made my life so much easier. I was born here. Right? So I have my, my, my life is so much easier than it is for some of my Brazilian friends who are also in Brazil, same train jiu-jitsu, but they had to struggle so much more to be able to live here, right? Whereas to me, it was just like, I don't even know what it's like to apply to it. I've never applied for a visa in my life, you know that? Because any country I go to, like, I got two passports, right? Little things like that. You know, I'm healthy. Like, it's, it's easy to take it for granted and say, like, oh, it's all me. It's like, no, man, that's a lot. Not to mention the people in my life. Start looking at the people in your life that make your life easier, that allow you to live the life that you want to live. I think it just... 
by acknowledging some of the gifts that you you had just by being born into existence is just being grateful yeah. acknowledging the opportunities that you may have had that other people wouldn't have had you know yeah. just like i mean even something as simple as just having good parents which yeah huge dude that's and, that's probably the most important one yeah yeah you know and that you don't control that right like you as a kid you have no impact on that whatsoever so that's kind of a lottery in a sense that yeah. like you got good parents and you you're already set up significantly well compared to a a massive amount of the population. I feel very fortunate. I had great parents. I still do. And uh, I have a really good relationship. And and I'm sure like you with your mom, you know, like they backed me through the whole martial arts. Like even though my family's professional family, like engineers and lawyers and doctors, when you're like, oh, I'm going to do martial arts, everybody's like, uh, that's a hobby, right? Yeah, same, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so like... Just having someone support you there is is huge yeah. because being able to stay in that martial arts journey takes support. Yeah, it's because as you know, when you start up, you're not making anything. Especially, yeah. well, maybe nowadays it's different, but like when we got going, there's no there's no reward inside. Yeah, like, there's no guarantee you're ever. I mean, I thought I was going to be broke for the rest of my. I was convinced. <laughs> I was I was okay. I'd made my peace with it actually. Yeah. You know, you know, so like you, the the goals were different. We were. I feel like early martial artists were more about the development and teaching. Like, there's something very fulfilling about passing on knowledge yes. to somebody. Right? Like, yes, I'm glad you touched on that one. And, you know, like, for example, here, it's crazy. I think this is the first time I actually had lunch with you as yeah. far as, like, I made wow. you a lunch, right? To me, that's something that I enjoy. Like, I like I can make something for my friend. Yeah, that yeah. He enjoyed it. That's, like, a, a good way for me, like, of sharing something yeah, that yeah. I have. And martial arts knowledge is the same. Yeah. Especially when I can teach something to somebody and see it make a profound impact yeah. on their life. Like it's rewarding. They get confidence. So they, you know, they might in turn teach somebody else and help them. Like whenever I have stories of someone using self-defense in something that I taught, I'm like, okay, this is far more valuable than somebody winning like a world title. Yeah. Like I had actually taught a self-defense seminar at a sorority in Fort Myers. It was like one of the one of my former students. She was one of the heads of the sorority. He said, "Oh, you know, come over and teach the girls stuff." And I brought like four guys. It was a huge. It was like sixty girls there, and uh, we taught them all basic guard, armbar, triangle choke, rear naked choke. You know, and you know they're college girls. Everybody's laughing. And, you know, I'm like, I'm not sure if anybody actually learned anything here. You know, people are messing around. Now, the following weekend, the girl calls me. Goes, "Hey, I just wanted you to let you know one of the girls was attacked by her boyfriend." But apparently a knife or gunpoint, and she armbarred him, broke his arm, and yeah. was able to call a cop yeah. and save her life. I was like, damn. Yeah, man, that's a home run. That's a home run. You that's know? a it's big like, win. It's amazing. Like, save that woman's life, you know, and that's yeah. like, that's impactful. You know, we have, and that's just a handful of stories. I'm sure you've had many of those as well. So that's like the value, you know, like being able to change someone's life and in a positive impact you you want to think that like you know I, I have this as a measuring something that for some reason always been somewhat in the back of my mind i i think a lot about dying i don't i'm not scared of dying but i, th- I think a lot about death mm-hmm. right and i go like what would i want to be my deathbed is something that's always like haunting me it's like what am i who do i my last thought i want it to be a very positive one yeah. I, I have that in my like I, I don't know what kind of life i'm living all the way to the end but i want my last few thoughts to be happy thoughts I'm like i did more good than bad because you're gonna do bad there's no way around sure. it. you fuck someone over you've done something you're not even aware of the shit you've done wrong sometimes you know you do something wrong you don't even know oh like five years later oh man that was messed up right 
a matter of maturity. Sometimes you don't even know. But you would like to look back and go, I've done more good than bad. Like the positive outweighed the, the negative. You know, and I think that's a good way of looking at things. And I think that martial arts does do that. And I think people miss out on that, though. We become so selfish. And I think this is where, like, it's, it's cliche to say that money poisons everything. But, man, it's kind of true. Yeah. It is true. Like, it really is. I, I remember, like, talking about the old days again. Like, you trained because you loved jujitsu. There was zero expectation to get a... I mean, if you got a... Dude, when I got a, my first sponsor, Dave, I won this, like, regional title in Brazil. It was a purple belt. And I had the world championship was in a week. And the guy's, hey, man, you compete in the world championship? I'm like, yeah. If I give you one of my gis, will you wear it? I'm like, what? I'm getting a free gi? It's like, a, it's like, a, like you know, how much is like that? That's, that's, I was so happy I had one gi. I'm a sponsored athlete, you know? Yeah. Like, I was so happy, Dave. You know, and, and but we, that's not why we did it is my point. Like, yeah, you can enjoy those moments. But I think that a lot of people are doing it for, they want to make money. They want to be popular. They want to be famous. They want that recognition. And I, I think that they miss out on all this other stuff that we're talking about, which is more important. It's more valuable. Yeah. Um, there's, there's something about, like, passing on information like you were talking about. Like, I, I, I told this story recently. It might have been on the podcast, a few podcasts back, whatever. But, like, when Leo would travel, man, I'd drive to Sao Paulo to teach class for him. He'd ask me to teach, right? And I'm like, man, I'm, like, he asked me? Out of all these black belts here, like, 20 black belts on the mat, he asks me to teach class for him? I'm honored. The wheels are turning, man. I'm driving. What am I going to teach? I'm going to teach you to a class, man. And like, it never crossed my mind to get paid. Yeah. Never crossed my mind. It wasn't even a thought. I was so honored that I got like 20 world-class black belts on the mat. I'm going to teach them. That's crazy to me. Right? What an honor. I, some of these, like, I get like, some of my blue belts, purple belts. I ask them to help with the white belts. They don't want to help. It's in their face. They're like disgusted. Like, like you know, I'm taking advantage of them or something. And I'm like, man, like, first of all, that's kind of a dickish thing not to want to help people who need help. Right, regardless if you pain and be a pain member or not, still help people, man. These people need to learn jujitsu as well. I think people become so selfish and self-centered, they can't fathom yeah, the thought of like maybe giving something. And what they're missing out on is going back to what you're saying is that it actually feels really good to help people and watch them execute the move that you taught them. Man, that's very rewarding. That's way more reward, and it is more rewarding than the tournament because a tournament when you win is very short-lived. Yeah, you have like a high. It's almost like compared to a drug. It's like, you know, taking a hit. I've never been addicted to drugs, but I imagine you get, a, you get euphoric for a minute there, and then it goes away and doesn't mean anything anymore. It's off. But, man, like, knowing that you're actually impacting someone's life, like, that's something that's, I know it stays, man. It's, it's very rewarding. I think if people underestimate that the power of that and, 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 you know, fulfilling us and giving us satisfaction, true happiness. And, yeah, like, it's just we become so individualistic and selfish. Like I literally have purple belts. But like they look at me like I'm taking advantage. Like oh my god, Robert's such a horrible person asking the purple belt to help the white belt. I think that's shocking. Man. Like I don't know what happened to jujitsu. It wasn't like that. Yeah. It used to be honored to help people. Now it's like oh, I'm too good. For, like, everything is below them. Yeah, I know. Like uh, even when I'm doing classes under you or Marcelo, so, sometimes you, you guys pair me off with the white belt. I'm fine with that. Uh, you know, like, uh, we're both going to learn. I don't like to train with white belts. <laughs> I'm fine teaching that. Training is a different story. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I don't even care about that either. As long as I don't get the white belt no, elbows. It's, it's, it's one in ten. People exaggerate. Yeah. One in ten is going to elbow you, pull your hair. You know, like, they, they also, they don't, they're, they're so spazzy and willing to show themselves, prove themselves. Yeah. That they end up, like, kicking you in the nuts, like, you know, three times in a five-minute round. I've been pretty good with that lately as far as, like, a lot of it's how you control because you kind of set the pace as a, yeah. 
the, the senior belt. And of course, there's anomalies, but for the most part, if I'm going really chill, people will generally match the energy, yeah. right? And especially if you've been cool with them the whole time. You know, if I've been like teaching you as a white belt, as a dick, and then we go to roll, you're probably not going to be as nice, right? Yeah. You're probably not going to try to show this guy what's up. Yeah. But I, if I've been super cool with you doing the drilling and the technique, when we go live, odds are, you know, you're going to probably match my energy. Yeah. You know, and that's generally it is like, and you know, like I might roll with a white belt, we're going really chill. And then I'm going with you and now, okay, now we're like tournament final, yeah, yeah, low, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. but like you can switch that way, you know, so. I, I feel like it's like you're saying the younger up and coming guys that feel like it's beneath them because to, the culture has changed. Yeah, they, they see themselves as professionals. They don't see themselves as students anymore. But even like in our teams, like we used to have like fight, uh, fight training and stuff like that, where yeah. only fighters were there. But then after a certain point, we just integrate them all together, you know. And then of course during sparring sessions, we part partner up the fighters or pro level guys together, but. Nobody's beneath training somebody else, you know, and you'd be surprised what you could learn from just your normal average student. You know, like I said, I used to have this guy, uh, uh, Jimmy, <laughs> if he's listening to Mantequilla, but he would get uh, moves from wrestling, Japanese wrestling video games. And he would tell me, hey, Dave, do you think this will work? And I'm like, no, well, it's the only one way to find out. <laughs> and I've actually used two of his techniques. Yeah. And I, I remember one of them was a takedown off a single leg. Yeah. And like you were, essentially you're in a low, you know, head side single, you're getting stuffed down and you spiral underneath the leg yeah. and you spin. And I remember he showed to me like, ah, it looks like it could work. And I did it to a D1 wrestler twice. Yeah. And boom, and took him down both times. I'm like, legit. Okay, so <laughs> kids at home, he's not <laughs> suggesting you should not go to the gym and just play video games to learn moves. <laughs> just in case someone misunderstands what he's saying. No, but I get what you're saying, bro. Like it's, um, yeah, there's a, uh, yeah, there's a, um, there's something about like sharing that experience with students, man. Like I, I, I love teaching and I'm not crazy about jujitsu politics. I think my biggest beef with jujitsu is like how much the culture has changed, man. Like it's changed the last 10 years, 20 years. It's got, it's gotten very, very, um, uh, very self-centered. I feel like it is no, there's less community and it's not, it's, it's, I think it's a minority. But because the minority is in the forefront, they're shaping culture. So you can have a minority, but if they're the ones that are constantly being seen by everyone else, that becomes the norm. So the rest of the culture kind of follows suit, right? If you go to most jiu-jitsu gyms, like 99% of your students don't even care about competition. They're just having a good time rolling around. Yep. But they'll still be affected by that culture. Sure. Right? Because that culture, if they see like all the best black folks of the world behaving that way, oh, that's how jiu-jitsu is then. Right, so it's not something that happens very quickly, but I think that you know, I think sometimes we, I think we should kind of take a step back and and think more in terms of community and less of individuals. Like people used to give that bad that Crionchi, right? You know what Crionchi means? Yeah, and yeah. It's a trader, right? They got a bad rep. Like, you know, I think there's some there's there's two sides to this discussion, right? Like I think loyalty is something that is commendable. I think you should be loyal. That being said, you have to be loyal to. If people are loyal to you as well. There, there are times I think it's the right thing to do to leave a gym. I've left gyms before, Dave, and I have zero regrets. I think I did the right thing. It was like I felt like I was given a loyalty to the team that they weren't giving me because they weren't training with me or I had no one to train with and I just had to move on. And I think there are moments where that's justified. I think you can ration, I can justify that, no problem. But there's just a thing about like the complete lack of loyalty that we have today. It's like the other way around. 
Now it's like, there's like people have zero guilt. Like I remember when I left gyms, man, it just went on for weeks. And I'm like, it's hard. And I sit down with my instructor and try to tell him, look him in the eye and tell him why I wasn't going to train with him anymore. People are hard to do. It's hard to do, man. But like, I think that's the right thing to do. Like if I'm going to leave, I'm going to tell you why I'm leaving. And it's not personal. It's just that this is what's happening, right? Yeah. I've, but today they do it like, man, it's just like change, change in underwear. It's just like, just like that, boom, gone. I've been fortunate in the sense that I've never had to leave a team. I've pretty much been... Oh, you're an instructor too your whole life, right? Well, in essence, but like... So when I started wrestling, I wrestled with my wrestling coach, Tirso Valls. And I remember my senior year, I actually moved to Fort Lauderdale, Weston. So technically, I wasn't supposed to be going to school in Miami with him. And I could have transferred to a different school, which would have actually been an easier regional tournament for me. Because the South Florida region, or I mean, I guess the South Miami region, the four placing in regionals were the same four that placed in state. So pretty much it's like, if you can make it out of the regions, you could, you're probably going to place in state. But I didn't want to leave my coach behind because I felt that was my guy. I mean, so I ended up living with my grandmother, who still had her house in Miami, for like the wrestling season, just so I can you know, compete and train with him. And uh, once we got out of that, trained with my uh, Randy Ibera, who was my, my brother's shoot fighting MMA, Balototo coach. And uh, we trained with him until he moved. And then that's when me and my brother essentially were on our own and we started our own association. But all the people like I've always affiliated, I'm still in contact with, you know, like, yeah. I'm, I'm fortunate that my wrestling coach still trains with us in our gym. He was actually, I think he got to a pro belt yeah. before he got too busy with life. There, there's a way to do it, man. Like, you can, you can maintain good, leave a gym and still have a good relationship with everyone. I, I have a good relationship with every single one of my former coaches. I don't have beef with any of my former training partners or coaches. Not a single one. But what you're saying is, like, the proper approach as yeah. far as, essentially, our visions are no longer aligned, yeah. right? Because if you're training with a coach or with a team, there is a shared vision, right? Like, we want to get to this point, and this is how we're going to do it. You know, and unfortunately, sometimes we still want to get here, but my path is like this, and your path is like this. They're, they're not congruent. And, you know, I'm going to be upset, and you're going to be upset at me. This is when we split. You know, and we, I've had those splits before. Yeah, it's like a relationship. Yeah, yeah and it's it happens like sometimes, like as long as you're mature about it, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, most people are immature about it. They can't reconcile, like, how can this person think differently? No, yeah. they're just they're just trying to cheat me. They're trying to screw me, blah, 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 you know? And we've seen a lot of those as well. Right? <laughs> oh, there's tons of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, like, device splits, like, I've had one of our fighters who is you know, UFC fighter and all that, but we had a split. He wanted a training camp one way. He wanted another way. I'm like, you know what? Not a fit anymore. Not a fit anymore. No, I, I, and no? I, th I think that but that, like, the maturity is the key word here. Like, I... Like, Honestly, man, like, I don't get offended at people that don't want to like the way I train. Like, I always say this, like, I, tr I teach the center. I don't teach the margins. I can't teach jiu-jitsu for some people. I have to teach for the majority of the group, right? So if you have a diverse group, you have to teach, think something that's going to work for everyone, right? Some people want different kind of methods or maybe it's whatever reason. They don't like me. They don't like, I'm fine with that. But, like, I think that there's a level of respect that you ought to pay people who instructed you. Because you'll have that... The conflict comes down, it goes back to money. That's where the conflict lies because you have a student master approach, which is very traditionalist. Let's say, let's call it the Japanese approach, right? That, that hierarchy, like this tradition of martial arts, right? I am the sensei, 
you are the student. If I tell you to go get me water, you sprint. Yeah, like, yeah. that's kind of how it was. Like that's that's how. And and on the other end, it's like, oh, I'm a customer. You work for me. I'm paying you, so I outrank you. Right. We're in in jujitsu. The moment we're, what we've seen is a conflict of those two hierarchies. They're overlapping each other. Right. It's creating a problem because like we don't know who the boss is anymore. Right. Like, this is why I love wrestling because it's government funded. So you don't have that problem. So if you're a wrestling coach and someone starts acting like an asshole, you tell them to fuck off. Right. Like you can tell me anything. I mean, you can really talk to me any way you want. You can train me any way you want. And if you don't like it, there's someone else. End of debate. Right. There's a hierarchy. That's why it works. In jujitsu, we don't really have that anymore. Like it's changed. Like it's kind of like I'm the boss, but kind of not really. You get students that are whining for belts, and then like all of a sudden, as a gym owner, you're under pressure because you don't want to lose a student. Like it's financial too, right? So you worry about these. Like it, it's it's so conflicting because you can't. It's not clear who the boss is. Who is on top? It's technically, in theory, on the surface, it's the instructor, but the student doesn't see it that way. So when he like leaves you, he doesn't feel like he owes you anything. I paid you. It's sort of like his mindset, right? Which is true. Like that's there's 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 a there's a logic there. It's not unreasonable to say that. I just like think that jujitsu is more than a business transaction. I feel that way. Maybe other people feel differently. Like I developed a friendship with you with like other people at the gym. I couldn't just go, oh, by the way, I'm moving cities now. I'm not going to train with you anymore. We don't talk anymore. Yeah. No, we're, we're still friends. Wait a sec. We trained together for 10 years. Like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, to me, that those bonds, they don't break when there's no longer a financial attachment. So if we're not in business anymore, you're not my student and paying me a membership, it doesn't mean that you don't owe me respect. Right? It doesn't like I was your teacher for a long time. I think that that's where I think that things get lost is that people see everything as a business transaction. And not everything should be. Yeah. You know, it's particularly, it's funny, as you mentioned, like, that people kind of discommunicate and rewrite history, in essence, right? Yeah. I've had students that are now, like, top fighters and black belts. They train with me since they started. And then there's not a mention of my brother and I in their bio and their history. That's insane to me. They, and, uh, That's so insane to me. Yeah, and then one of them was interviewed, major podcast, and they asked, how, how did you get started? And it's like, skipped over. I'm like, so it's like, you skipped over your origin story, yeah. you know? It's like, man, that's kind of weird. You know, it's kind of a weird thing to do. Like, even if you were upset at somebody, to pretend that they didn't have any role in your life, you know? It's, so, yeah, it's, called, yeah. it's called erasing of history. Yeah. Uh, Orwell's memory hole, that's what he called it. You just... On. It's like you erase it because it's, it's not convenient, you know. Yeah. So, and I've seen that quite a bit. You know, I'm sure you have as well. It's like people try to pretend like you didn't have a role in their in their life or whatnot. And I, you know, it's kind of weird. It is. It, it, weird. It's. I think it's because, inhuman almost. It's like yeah. it means like, what are you a robot or something? Like yeah. it's 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 unethical, I believe. But again, it's our fault. I think anyone who sure. has an expectation is the one who's at fault. Because we ought to know better. Yeah. If you're giving, it's giving. Yeah. There's no expectation. Well, Tommy, that was Livorio. Mm. I was uh, having this conversation with him years ago, and he just went like that. Like, give. Went like that. Give. Donate. That's it. Give it. Just a gift. That was it. And it was like one of those light bulb moments. I'm like, okay, I'm wrong. I'm expecting loyalty. Like, you shouldn't expect. It's nice if you receive it. I think you ought to give it. But that's you. You can't control what other people do. You give. You do your part. If other people are going to do their part, you can't control that. Like, why are you worried about it? Yeah. Like, am I going to stop giving? Maybe I should. I think I should be more selective about who you give to. 
Sure. I think that should happen. But I don't think you should stop giving because, you know, most people won't appreciate it. Like, no, man, I think, I don't know, there's, there's a part of me that, that is stubborn and being hopeful. You know, you don't want to be too cynical, I guess. No, it, it, it can be easy, too, when you've been, you deal with a lot of people uh, who, unfortunately, take advantage or, yeah. you know, they mistreat the relationship. And they're like, kind of like people who get jaded from bad relationships. Like, oh, oh no, yeah, no yeah. every relationship is yeah. shitty. Like, no, no, you're just, you've been looking in the wrong places. You yeah, know, you yeah, know, you know. Wrong character flaws. Like, you have to find the right people. And yeah. they're, they're out there, you know. So it's the same thing as far as, I think, Tinder. Tinder. <laughs> Don't go on Tinder. Don't go on Tinder. I've used Tinder before. It's a nightmare. No, but in Vegas, it is a shit. You don't want to go on Tinder. Uh, but, man, like, um, no, you're right. Like, it's, it's, you could be easily become, you know, jaded over all this. And I think that's part of the struggle. It's been like a constant. Like, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, it's, it is almost like an internal fight that you, you, you fight, you know, for not allowing the negativity or allowing the, the bad experience to shape how you see the world. Because I think to some extent it should, but you got to keep a balance between, I call it the balance between hope and cynicism. You can't have, if you're too cynical, you're going to be sad. If you're too hopeful, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> They're both bad. <laughs> you need a little bit of both. Yeah, you need, a, you need to be a little realistic, right? Yeah. I, I, I tend to be on the optimistic side of things. Yeah. No, that's, really, that's a, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a good place yeah. to be. You just, you just have to balance it because if you're too optimistic, you're going to walk out there with your hands down into a fight. It, the world's a fight, man. you got to keep your hands up. Oh, for sure. It's a fight. And you, the thing, I, you should almost approach like, And I, I, I've always approached like, oh, man, I get my hands down. Like, now I sort of approach people. I think I'm wise if like, I kind of walk up to people like, all right, what is this going to be about? Uh, <laughs> your hand up like this just in case. Yeah, yeah, I'm just in case. <laughs> and if I see you putting your hands down, I'm like, okay, we're putting our hands down. But I, th I think it's almost like a better approach that you start relationships with your hands way up high and then put your guard down as they develop. I think that's safer. Um, at least you don't get hit. Because I'm not going to hit you, but I just want to make sure that I don't get hit back, right? Yeah. Uh, because, man, like, it's, especially with money, man, like, people get greedy. Like, it's very, very unethical. You know what it dawned on me, and I've used this example multiple times before, on how unethical the world has become? It's getting worse. I know it sounds cold, but, like, it is getting worse. There are people in this world that look up to Pablo Escobar. Can you believe that? <laughs> I'm serious. I saw the other day, I was watching, like, I don't know where I was. I saw this kid, he was wearing a shirt that had Pablo Escobar's, like, face on it. I'm like, holy shit, Pablo Escobar is a hero to America's youth. You don't, like, let that shit sink yeah, in. Yeah, might as well put, like, a Ted Bundy shirt on. Yeah, like, Adolf yeah. Hitler, like, why not? Like, yeah. while we're at it, like, Genghis Khan, you know? Yeah. It's, it's just like, wow, that's the kind of person you admire, you want to emulate in your life? It's like, it is. Right, because it's like you know, made money, so everything is permissible. Like, like you got to draw the line somewhere. Right? I like money too, but shit, I'm not willing to do anything for money. Yeah, you know. Anyway, no, it's no, like you were saying. Essentially, the value system has skewed a lot, and I think coming back to something you were mentioning earlier, as far as like martial art influencers, it does have an effect when you have your top guys like Conor McGregor. You know, like. Yeah. To say he hasn't had a cultural impact is a massive no, understatement. Yeah, he's absolutely he's shifted the whole landscape into being more sensational, more yeah. over the top, you know. Yeah. And as martial artists for the culture, that's a minus, you yeah. know. On the business, it's a plus. Yeah. But once again, then you have these battles. Plus for him too, though. Like I, yeah. I mean, how many? How many? 
Yeah, just do more people. Maybe more fighters on average make more because of him, possibly. But like you got to see, like he's benefited most ninety percent of the benefits of that have gone to him and the UFC. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. maybe maybe the other fighters benefited the other the fat, like the the, the leftovers. You know. Yeah, yeah. But like that, he essentially has changed a lot. Even in grappling and stuff, you've seen how that what I call the McGregor effect has, yeah. you know, dribbled down there. Where now, like, I thought it was kind of silly when they made a thing between uh, Mikey Musumeci and Gio Martinez. Yeah, I followed like, that briefly. I, I didn't really understand what happened, but I, I see it's almost impossible for, like, someone like Musumeci to be upset. You know I, mean? I know. I, that's what that surprised a lot of people because you saw how pissed he was. Yeah. And you've never seen him anything but with a smile on his face. Yeah, and that that didn't make any sense to me. I guess he got offended because Gio didn't want to be his friend or whatever. I'm like at the same time, they just got he, out of they just got out of a fight. That's understandable. Yeah, you know, yeah. like and this is some people. Oh, they're not fighting. It depends, man. Like to me, like I've played flag football games that were like a fight. <laughs> you know, like fight it, is a subjective it, word. It, yeah, it, it's your mentality yeah. how you approach things. Yeah. Like I remember. <laughs> This is a funny story. I was playing football with some college buddies, yeah. and they were doing like mechanical engineers for the civil engineers or electrical engineers. I was in the electrical engineers team, which are typically nerdy kids, right? Yeah. And it was essentially four stick figured characters, and then me going against a bunch of mechanical engineers, which were more broad guys. And I'm like, oh, we're playing flag football, whatever. But I see one of this boom, lay out one of my guys. I'm like, oh, it's on now yeah so like it was tackle pretty much at that yeah. point I, I was like running people over and like four people had to get on me to try to rip the flag out and it became very physical and my buddy's house was like damn dude that's like that was very aggressive I'm like it's probably why i don't play football yeah. <laughs> like every time i compete especially if it's a physical sport it's, 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 it's gonna be i'm gonna be doing everything i can to win yeah. you know within the rule set so like when you say oh grappling's in a fight like man I've been hurt more grappling than I have been in fighting strike yeah no hundred percent and here's the thing it's not that that's not the definition of fighting like because I've gotten to have this debate so many times with people because they get upset if you say okay, like grappling is fighting I'm like look it up on a dictionary simple just end of debate just read the definition of a fight in the dictionary and your definition of fight is the one that doesn't apply to the dictionary so you're the one who has an odd definition of fighting you got to write your own dictionary buddy like I'm going by what the Oxford Dictionary says, what we do is a fight. Not to mention, one could fight cancer. Yeah. One could fight traffic, I suppose. One could fight I mean, a million different things. I mean, fighting is a very broad word. It is a fight. It's just, it, it doesn't necessarily, I think the strikers are the ones that get bugged by this. That's yeah. what I noticed because they see punching is a fight. Oh, choking someone out isn't? That's a pretty dumb definition. It's like, oh, you have to be punching someone for it to be a fight. So if I'm trying to choke you to death, that's not a fight. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it doesn't it, even make sense. It, it doesn't ring to me because to me, that I always saw fighting as, like you said. Literal. Yeah, like you're, you're it, struggling. Yeah, it's a, it's a struggle. It's whatever you take Confidence. it as mentally. Like, for that's why, like, I always compete till, like, I'm, I'd be dead, right? So everything's yeah. a fight to me. Yeah. I, I've, you know, like I said, I was playing that flag football game like it was a fight. You know, I was going all out. Yeah. So... It's kind of, to me, it's almost insulting. You're saying, well, I'm not fighting. Because yeah. I get some people play sports like it's a game. But, like, you're not on my level. Yeah. You're not seeing things the way. Yes. I don't play sports I, I like play a game. I play to win, yeah. I, I play for keeps. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
like uh, Doc Holiday. He's playing for blood. That's when I compete. That's what it's about. You know, I'm I'm coming in for everything, and that's you know? good. Yeah, I, I, I think it's I, good. Yeah, it's it's intense, sure. but it's, but it's but you, yeah. it's it's fulfilling. Yeah, and also for the person who loses, it's also good because they're gonna learn something. Yeah, it's merit. There's merit there. Like there's. I'm not one of those like oh just compete for the fun of it. Like you can if you want. That's one way of doing it. But I think competing to make progress is more fulfilling. For sure. You know? Yeah, and you also if you're competing that way, chances are you're training to support that style of competition. Yeah. And even if you do lose, there's no regret, right? You're like, well, I you know I wasn't the the better man today, yeah. but I did everything I could. You know, I've lost matches where I'm like, oh, you know. Like uh, when I lost to you, I'm like, man, I did what I could, man. Like I, yeah. I gave it all, you know, and your freaking long ass yeah. arms <laughs> got me that. Yeah. I remember because it's my I, only takedown too, by the way. <laughs> I I love underhooking people off shots and yeah. catching shots. And normally when I could yes, get that I when I could get that underhook, I can pull you up. Yeah. But your arms wrapped completely around me with the underhook and the yeah. double. I was like, oh shit! And you just dragged me down yeah. into a, a half guard, I think. Dave is being like, he's being generous. He for those of you who don't know the, the the real story, the whole story, Dave had a thirty or forty minute war with Sean. No, 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 no. it was twenty five minutes. Twenty five minutes, but it was a war, a wrestling, right? Mostly, right? It was like a lot of takedowns. Well, no, like uh, I, I, I don't I remember vaguely the fight. I, I'm not going to use that as a that. That's not why I lost to you. I lost to you because you took me down. Because yeah. my cardio was on point. That's why you remember I told you. I think we talked about the last podcast when I was going against Zanji. I knew well. I was counting on twenty minute match, double overtime. Yeah easy and i also knew what i was dealing with because i had no grips I, I didn't train grips at all so i remember when i was trying to submit uh even the first guy i grappled with on day one my submissions were off like i could barely grab anything i'm like well i'm not submitting anyone today it's gonna be all points but my legs were great because that was after my bodog fight so I remember I had my hand messed up. I had a messed up knee and a pop rib. So I wasn't grappling. I was running. I, I ran seven miles a day. So my cardio was amazing. That's why, like, when I... I got barely any rest between that match and, and when I went with you, but it didn't affect me. because I was like, my cardio was never an issue. It was still a lot, man. Like, it was yeah. only... The only issue I was going to have was technically. And, yeah. you know, that's what got me. I was... I never... I don't grapple people usually that tall. So I know that now it throws you off, man. It, it does. It does throw you off. You yeah, know, because even though like we're sitting here and I look, I'm, <laughs> you look at the camera, I look like I'm taller than Robert. I'm not. It's because I'm like <laughs> I'm like super. Late. No, actually, but you have you have like I got long legs. My upper yeah. body is not that. I have yeah. We're about the same height upper body wise. Yeah, that's yeah. a weird thing. Yeah. So I've actually had my chair might be low. I don't know, but like I have long legs. That's where my most my, my torso from. is really tall. Yeah, I have short legs because I I've noticed this now mechanically because the way I deadlift is affected by. My, like most people when they deadlift there's a lot of hamstring I get minimal hamstring activation me it's all hip hinge so like everything's a little bit different from that body mechanic but regardless grappling with someone taller like I love underhooks but underhooks suck against taller guys because you can't really bear them down as much so they get the, the big overhook yeah. on you you know or they, they can reach over but like in Miami I'm dealing with a lot my team was, I was always the heaviest guy on my team. Which doesn't yeah, it make throws it, you off. It's different. It's different. So, like, my pace is also revolved around that. It's very fast pace. Yeah. Very, and I, I play loose and fast, usually, which is opposite of somebody. In the heavier division. In the heavier division yeah. that is usually playing tight. So, you know, there's pros and cons to it. 
But uh, yeah, like fatigue wise, I've I've rarely had issues in training. You know, in competition rather. Like I've always known like early on that was my advantage. I knew like I could gas people out, and like to especially when technically. I would, because you know like guard passing a lot is an issue of attrition yeah. right like when someone's guards fresh generally guard you're not going to pass it you got to break them you got to break them right yeah. and I, I always felt guard passing for me was kind of like that scene in the in the matrix when they're trying to hack into morpheus's brain it's just a matter of time yeah. right i just got to keep grinding yeah so with people like i just need to be able to stay on top yeah. and grind 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 i'm not going to get tired I know I'll get them a little bit more They'll break than before me. I do. I tell myself the same thing. Yeah, They'll break before I do. Yeah, they're going to break. Especially in the heavier divisions. Yeah. Um, you know, but the height thing, that's, so it's so funny you say that because I had the same problem in, in, in Brazil. Like my tallest training partner was Damian Maya. Everyone else was shorter than mm. me. Pumprito was my height and weight, but he lived in Rio. So I only trained with him maybe three, four times a year, really. So everyone else was like middleweight, lightweight, and I'm like super heavy. I'm like 100 kilos, and my most of my training partners are 80, 85. That's a lot, man. We're talking like yeah, 35 pounds difference. Big, like, a, and and not only that, they're like, it's it, they're a lot shorter than me too. So all of a sudden, I'm fighting Roger, who's like half a foot taller, right? He was like, I'm, he's that tall, dude. I I, I feel I don't know how tall. I feel like he's a good. He, I'm looking up, you know. <laughs> I, I'm so tainted because I'm used to like looking when I grapple people. Yeah. I'm always the tallest person. Because you're like what six two, or? six three, six three. So he's he's got to be at least six six. I don't know. Jesus Christ. Minimum, minimum. I I, I feel like I'm. I throws me off, right? And I'm not. But it's it's just very strange to grapple with someone that has a style that has nothing to do with what you're used to in the gym every day. This is where, and I've been always been an advocate. Like you don't need a lot of training partners. But I think every now and then it's good to have someone that is, if you have like, you'll have a big pool of guys, they'll feel the same and fight the same. Every now and then you're going to be thrown off in competition. Yeah. You're going to find that one guy that has a style or some athletic ability or height, whatever it is, it's going to throw you off. And it's something you could have adjusted to after you got taken down or your guard passed two or three times. You, it's like a vaccine, you know, like now I'm adjusted. I've assimilated what you're doing. I just have to make these adjustments, and I'm good to go. But you gotta, you know, you gotta eat shit for a little bit until you make those adjustments. But you can't do that in competition. Yeah, it's on the go. You gotta like on the spot, very quick. Um, yeah, man, that's a. Uh, and I imagine, like, you know, if you're that tall, like, you don't have that same experience on the other end. Sure. Yeah. Like every- <laughs> never, but if like, here's the thing, like, you might have felt less going against a guy like Roger than I did. Oh, no, I get no, no, you. No, no, because you have shorter points, but someone who is used to, but from someone like a middleweight that is used to going against tall people, might have felt it less than you did. Than someone yeah. like me who's never grappled anyone. I've never, I, I mean, other than like blue belt every now and then, but like I've never had someone better and taller than me to grapple with. No, no, I, I it's funny because, and the same token, the worst matchup I hate to go up, up against grappling. It's another wrestler, short, stocky. Yeah, I'm like shit because it be it's 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 a bad matchup for your style. Yeah, because now it's like, well, back in the day, I remember like when my brother and I were starting, we were like the wrestlers. Yeah. And people might not know this. I only wrestled in high school. Yeah. I never even made state, so like I wasn't like a world class wrestler. I was just. But you were better than ninety nine point nine percent of the guys are in grappling tournaments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Back then, it was I was like a 
you Dan were Gable pretty much, yeah, right? They, they thought you were an Olympian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a George Pereira uh, called me black belt wrestler. I'm like, I'm not even like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was supposed to be an insult, but I took it as a compliment. Like, okay. But uh, yeah, so I think one of my first tough matches with another really good wrestler was Jay Heron or Jay Heronimus. Uh, he used to train here, I think, in Vegas. What's his name again? Uh, Jay Heron. He used to. Heron, yeah, yeah, yeah. Heron, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember I fought him in a grappler's course in the first round, and it was the first time that I had to play more off my back because uh, he's a good wrestler. He's yeah. a really good wrestler, yeah. and I hadn't—I wasn't used to it. Like you said, like I was always Throws a dominant wrestler. Yeah, so I'm like, yeah. okay, no, I, I got in there, and like I think he got the first takedown or whatnot. And then I ended up getting him in the armbar, but like it was like one of those rare moments where I played off my back, you know. And then uh, another tough wrestling match that I knew I was going to have was Dave Terrell. Dude, people yeah. say Dave Terrell was a monster. I never rolled with him. I know who he is. Yeah. But they say that back in the day, he was a monster, man. He was really good. Uh, so my match with him was supposed to be like the unofficial yeah. best U.S. grappler at that time for like 200 pounds. I ended up losing to him by a takedown or two. I think it was two takedowns. But it was like ADCC rules. First 10 minutes, no yeah. score. Last 10 minutes, score. So the first 10 minutes were very strategic. You know, like we like... We measured ourselves out a little bit. I pulled guard just to see how he would work on passing or whatnot. And then we got into a good match. I had a few close takedowns. He scored one uh, good ankle pick. Almost had me in a um, couple like uh, darts chokes and whatnot. I threw a flying triangle at the end. And <laughs> like I always do in a heel hook. It was a good scrap. I mean, he was legit. You know? I, remember, I, think, uh, I think this was before he fought... He took a bronze in the ADCC. I know he got Ricardo Almeida with a flying heel hook, you know, which... Flying foot, straight foot lock, I think. He like jumped over and he landed, like, face down on the foot lock. Yeah. I remember I was there, 2003. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So, I remember crazy. that was a match I was nervous about. That, will, that yeah. might be probably the most intense, baddest, sickest submission. I've, uh, seriously, I've yeah. never think I've seen a better submission in my life. Yeah, because he is like a flying footlock. How do we even do that? Like, I've never been replicated. I've never seen anyone else. Especially, do it. especially that early on, you know, because I mean, that's no, early it, for leg. Yes, it's yeah. it very. I think yeah. I we can't train that. Like, he improvised. I mean, he was like in a single with the ankle. Yeah, yeah? and then he just threw himself in the air, like threw oh, his leg over. He, he, he read and, yes, yeah, and yeah, landed yeah, yeah. face down, like dude, brutal man. I think he broke his foot. I mean, yeah. certainly, there's no way. There's no time to tap. There's no way he didn't get hurt from that because yeah. he landed like face down, straight footlock. Beautiful. Yeah, so he he was definitely legit. So yeah, I remember those. But to your point, long story short, when you go against styles that you're not used to, or maybe the styles that you're used to dominating, and yeah. then you get challenged, it throws you off big time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because now, like you're saying, if you're tall, and then someone is suddenly taller than you, it's like a whole crap. You the know? only way is if you're able to impose your A game right off the bat and never fight them in their world. Yeah, and that requires like aggression, intensity, confidence, lack of no hesitation. Just go full force, impose your world, and I think that would be we would be like because if you get into a strategical fight with someone like that, you're gonna be thrown off. I think you have to wait. The only way you could counter someone, you're like it's a very odd style for you is just like right off the gate, impose your style. Don't give them a chance to even come close, you know, to put a setting up their their uh, yeah their game. Yeah, it kind of like in. You know, I always always say in wrestling, they always say always make first contact. Yeah. You know, MMA or fighting, always yeah. get the first hit in. You know, like yeah. 
you want to start imposing your will yeah. right away. And that's more towards like the strategic element of things, but it's, it's super crucial. Yeah, psychological. Yeah, too. psychological is super important. You know, you see it happen in fighting all the time. Like they measure yourself out for like one minute. Sometimes you see like three, four minutes. I forgot which fight it was. It was like one of the heavyweights. I think it was like Derek Lewis and Nagano and whatnot, where it was like a very, I'm not sure if I'm thinking of the right fight, but there was one fight where like, it was like maybe 10 punches thrown in the first round. He's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. These people are so t- gun shy because they know like once they start opening up, it's the heavyweight division. It's I, I get it, man. Like this is why like sometimes like women's fight can be more exciting because they don't hit as hard to knock each other out. There's, there's more room for error. Yes. Yeah. So there's like they can bang. Like, I mean, the heavyweight division, man. It takes one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Get clipped. That, that one, even, that's that it. Not even one clean. Just like one no, anywhere. They hit so <laughs> yeah, hard. Yeah. The brain is the same, man. Like yeah. your brain is about the same size, but like. The amount of damage it can take doesn't change, but yeah. like the size of the impact on the other end, like that's, dude, that's huge. Yeah. Anyway, Dave, I gotta get going, man. I yep. got work day, but uh, let's do this. Uh, well, today is okay, Thursday. Let's do this, and then next week again. I'll be, I'll be, around, I'll be in town. Awesome for another one. All right. Yeah. Awesome, guys. See you guys next time. Thank you for everything. Thank you for watching, and yeah, see you again. Ciao. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, like, share, comment, leave your feedback, suggestions, all that good stuff. If you need help finding us online, just go to our website, breakingtheguard.com. It has links to all the different podcast platforms, social medias, YouTube, all that good stuff. Again, that's breakingtheguard.com. Until next time, take care. A final word from one of our sponsors, which is bjjcradle.com. BJJCradle.com is your source for the Drysdale Cradle Series course, which is now available online and in DVD formats. Uh, yeah, and I talk about this pretty much in every other podcast because it's a really excellent way of passing the guard, particularly if you have trouble with the Z guard, the China wall, or the shin shield, right? Essentially, whenever you're in that half, open half guard and they have that shin across your belly, it could be a real problem to get around that. And using the cradle is a great way to get a, not only pass the guard from there, but also to set up submissions like the guillotine, the darts choke, or the Japanese necktie. So go ahead, visit bjjcradle.com, and you can get some free videos uh, from the course and, of course, order there. Uh, again, if you haven't been using cradles in your jiu-jitsu game, I definitely recommend you check this out because it's going to give you a whole new look at how to use pinning with uh, jiu-jitsu.